And now on to today's program, the Chicago Food Encyclopedia. This was a monumental undertaking from the University of Illinois Press that I was honored to be part of, and what an honor it was to work with the three editors who are pillars of our town's food community. Carol Haddix, Colleen Sen, and Bruce Craig, past president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. Bruce is speaking out of town today, but we've got Carol and Colleen with us, so two out of three isn't bad. And Carol and Colleen will give us the genesis of this unprecedented encyclopedia. It's unprecedented for Chicago, right? Yeah, and, uh, and we are going to hear from three of the encyclopedia's contributors. Uh, we'll begin the show with brief introductions. Carol Mighton Haddix is the retired, retired as food editor of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, how many years has it been, Carol? Wow, and, but you were there for 34 years, wow. And under her direction, Good Eating, the Tribune's food section, won yearly best section awards and nominations from the Association of Food Journalists and writing awards from the James Beard Foundation. Carol is the editor of many Trib Chicago Tribune cookbooks as well as Chicago Cook's 25 Years of Food History uh, from Les Dames d'Escoffier. And Carol is also a founding member of the Culinary Historians of Chicago and the James Beard Foundation. And there's so much more, but I'm keeping it brief. So that was the tip of the iceberg for her. And Colleen Taylor-Sen contributed freelance articles to such publications as Travel and Leisure, Food Arts, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Christian Science Monitor. Over the past 20 years, Colleen has been a regular participant in the Oxford Symposia on Food and Cookery, and that's in England, right? Not Oxford, Mississippi, okay. And Colleen is an authority on Indian food and has talked many times before the culinary historians of Chicago. Her books include Curry, A Global History, Feasts and Fasts, The History of Food in India, and Turmeric, The Wonder of Spice, and there's, there's more. So again, I'm keeping it brief. Now as to the three contributors who are speaking, I'll be the first one after, after Carol and Colleen speak. And this is weird, I have to give my own in background. So I'm used to giving backgrounds and others. So let me tell you about Scott Warner. Uh, you already know that I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I'm also a food writer and had the dream assignment of writing a number of freelance food articles for Carol at the Tribune. And I'm a member of the International Association of Culinary Professionals. I'll be speaking about my friend, the late chef Louis Athmery of the Bakery Restaurant and his contributions to Chicago's food legacy. I will be followed by John Carruthers. John, are you here? Yeah, but if he doesn't show up, there'll be all the more for us to eat. So uh, anyway, um, we've got Eli's cheesecake here, but uh, and uh, anyway, um, I'll tell you about John, and hopefully he will be here. He has written about food and grilling for serious... Oh, he's going to speak on lunch counters. He has written about food and grilling for serious eats, New City, and in two cookbooks from Running Press. John runs Chicago-based grilling club, Man BQ, occasionally caters, and is two-time hot dog cook-off champion of Chicago, and thus the world. And um, anyway, following John will be Judy... And I know how to pronounce your name, but it's, it's H-E-V-R-D-E-J-S, right? I know, like every days, every days. Every days? Every days, yeah. So it, don't, don't read her name because you'll never be able to figure it out. It's like every days, every days. Um, Judy will be talking about Czechs and Bohemians, uh, what is what one of the things she covered in the Food Encyclopedia. And Judy recently retired as a food and features writer at the Chicago Tribune. She was also one half of the Tribune's Inc. column, INC, generating daily news celebrity reports as well as TV segments. And Judy spent several years working in Mexico City as the features editor of an English language newspaper. And she was saying when she came here, uh, and worked for the Tribune because of her background in Mexico City. She interviewed a young, starting off, Rick Bayless. So uh, not a bad way to start here. And now let the show begin. So Colleen. Thank you, Scott. Um, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the genesis of the Chicago Food Encyclopedia, because people always say, how did you come to write such a book? And um, the, it started that, um, that Bruce Craig and I, who you all know, and um, we had collaborated on the Encyclopedia of World Street Food, which was re published recently as Everything You Want to Know About Street Food, <coughs> etc., and spoken about that. And we had about 40 contributors about that, and we also had contributed a lot of entries to other encyclopedias. The Encyclopedia of American Food, the Encyclopedia of Cheese, and so on. And I have to say that an encyclopedia is a very unique kind of uh, project because it takes quite a bit of management. It's not just you sit down and write a book. You have to do, there's a whole process of putting it together. And Carol's going to talk about that, about the process of doing it. But having got one encyclopedia under our belt, we were kind of um, thinking of a new project. And our collaboration also went, went smoothly. So um, we were thinking about doing something in Chicago. Maybe we would do like a history of Chicago food or that. And then Andy Smith, who you all know, since he's spoken to this group many times, um, Okay, um, he had come out with his book, Savoring Gotham, which is an encyclopedia of New York food. We thought, oh, this is great because there is no encyclopedia of Chicago food and this would be um, in keeping with what we've done with our experience and we can do this. So the next issue was where do we find a publisher? So Bruce uh, is a consultant to University of Illinois Press and he happened to just be dropping by the office of the, um, of the, uh, the director of the press. He mentioned this idea to him and he said, right away, we want to do it, we're going to sign it. So that went very smoothly too. So we didn't even you know, have to shop it around. So, um, so the two of us started thinking, you know, doing this, we were very happy and then we had talked to, we were thinking about who could contribute to it and we were thinking of course of Carol and Carol volunteered her services as a copy editor. Well then we thought, this is such a waste of talent. I mean, Carol's not only a brilliant writer, she has great contacts, she's a good name that would you know, help us get more uh, visibility. We, we thought we'd exploit you that way too. So we brought Carol on as the third editor. So we basically had three co-editors in this project. I have to say it went very smoothly because we've known each other a long time. And also, um, we did everything via the the internet, and I hope I'm not intruding on what you're going to say, but we were using um, Google Docs, so we, instead of just sending emails back and forth, we could upload things, and, and Carol was just a tremendous asset because she's so organized, and having managed the Tribune food page for 34 years, I mean, that takes a lot of managerial skills, and that's something that the project really needed. What the question that came to me when we were doing this is I don't know how people did encyclopedias in the old days, old days meaning 15, 20 years ago. I mean, everything would have done by paper. You'd have to mail things. You'd have to send them back and forth. So it, it just seemed like it would, but yet all these encyclopedias were done. So obviously it worked. So Carol is going to talk now about what the process is that, how we actually did the encyclopedia. So Carol. Okay, everyone asks the question, what, how did you know what to include? And it, it's really, we just started out with a list of headwords, topics that we knew we had to include, and then we set about trying to find people who were, had expertise in whatever topic it was. And so we asked journalists, we asked educators, historians, um, anyone we knew off the top of our heads. And, but once we did that, that led to more people and more topics, you know. Somebody would suggest something and we'd say, oh, we forgot to do that. Yeah, so we add that to the list and it kept growing and growing, but we knew we were limited. We didn't want it to be a huge encyclopedia. We wanted it to be for um, foodies, of course, in Chicago, but also for visitors who came to town. So it couldn't be a real heavy, you know, tome of some sort. So we did limit, and uh, I'm sure you, if you go through it, you'll say, well, they didn't include so-and-so, and okay. <laughs> Where do you cut it off? Where do you cut it off? So that took a while, that whole process took months and months. And um, we finally got our final list and we're working on it. And um, we were also trying to limit it as, as far as geography goes. Um, we knew we couldn't include all the suburbs. 
you know, and so we were trying to limit it mostly to the city limits, um, just to keep the book down in size again. So luckily, we keep talking about a second edition, so we know we can add a few more things and make some changes, so we're looking forward to that. And it's also an e-book, so that down the road might make it much easier to keep changing and adding names or places. I mean, even since we finished and turned in the manuscript, so many changes have happened in town. Restaurants closing, opening, new food halls coming in that we were, you know, had no, two years ago didn't know about. So it was, it's an ongoing process, and I encourage if you see anything missing, important, or just suggestions, let let us know. Our emails are I don't know if they're in the book or not, but they should be. They're probably online. Um, so that's how we went about doing it. And it took, the whole process took two and a half to three years, basically, to do. Um, big project. But um, we hope we've got all the important things and um, the revised list of topics keeps going. Um, in all, there's 375 entries in the encyclopedia and we had 70 about 70 different writers work on it. So um, each entry is ranges in size. Some entries are only 100 words, some are 1,500 words. Just kind of depended on the topic and what you know we felt was appropriate for it. So you have the beginning of the book is um, an overview of food history in Chicago. And then that's followed by A to Z entries in the book. And we have a bibliography in the back for more research. People want to read more about food history in Chicago. And I thought I'd just read like a couple paragraphs from the introductions to give you an idea just sort of what the tone of the book is. Um, these are the first three paragraphs. Chicago was, in historian Donald L. Miller's phrase, the city of the century. The 19th century was an age when America changed itself from a rural, small-scale manufacturing economy into the world's greatest agricultural and industrial power. American economic power rose on triple pillars. The first was compro comprised of iron, steel, steam, ships and railroads, machine tools, and farm machinery, the hard, visible signs of the first industrial age. An immense flow of immigrants was another pillar, and perhaps most important of all, massive food production was the third. Much of the machinery and human labor went toward making America the world's foremost food supplier, and Chicago was both the product and a main engine of this national transformation. The city was founded as a commercial enterprise, a trade and manufacturing center. Many of the founders came from New England and New York, they were people of their times, entrepreneurs of many stripes, determined to exploit the riches of the American interior and thereby make their fortunes. Wealth was to be made not in gold and silver, not in furs or luxury goods, but in foodstuffs. The men who became the city's first elected commissioners came here because they knew that the Erie Canal would link the small town of Chicago to New York City's markets. They soon planned more canals and later railroad lines to create a network running from the east to the Mississippi River and New Orleans. These new transportation systems made Chicago America's commodity center. But people do not live by industrial food production alone. The story of Chicago's food consists of several strands, one of which is commodity production, the processing and manufacturing of food, the other is what Chicagoans actually ate in their homes and out in public. Much of that came from the people who settled in the city. While basic American fare was the foundation, meat, bread, dairy, and potatoes, immigrants from across the globe brought their own food traditions. And eventually, these ethnic food preparations burst their community boundaries. Chicago's iconic dishes, such as hot dogs, deep dish pizza, and Italian beef, are examples not only of eclectic cuisine, but of Chicago's food identity. The story became more complex in the late 20th century, when the city became an international food center once again. Things go around in circles. 
not with the commodities this time, but with cuisine created by world-class chefs. And everybody knows how Chicago's gotten all sorts of accolades recently, James Beard Foundation, uh, other Bon Appetit magazine saying it's the best restaurant city in, in the nation. So we've come around, starting with food, ending with food, and getting our name in the national press. And this book, I think, tells the tale. So now I'll give it over to Scott, and he'll talk a little bit about a restaurant we all know. Be, before I begin my talk, I just want to know, uh, there are several people in the room who contributed to the book, uh, oh, Libet, Libet Richter, and um, Peter Engler. Peter, where are you? And is there anybody else who contributed? Oh, the Lanai, the Lanai's, uh, Robert Lanai. And uh, anybody else here? Oh, Ellen, how are you? And, and if you folks can hang around after when we do the book signing, because I'd like to get you to sign my book, so, uh, and just hang around where the book signing is going to be uh, great. And um, I'm going to talk about, I hope you can see this picture, uh, this, this gentleman, Chef Louis. Um, and anyway, uh, first there was Count Dracula, then came Chef Louis, and though both will, though both will go down in history as famous sons of Transylvania, Louis's reputation is thankfully far more savory. While Dracula feasted on his visitors, Louis gave his customers a feast, leaving his mark with his cutting-edge cuisine at the bakery restaurant. When Louis opened the bakery at 2218 North Lincoln in 1962, the standard for fine dining in Chicago was typically a meal of shrimp cocktail, iceberg lettuce with Thousand Island dressing, prime rib of beef accompanied by asparagus with hollandaise, and for dessert, baked Alaska. And I mean, I think that's pretty good stuff, but uh, Anyway, Louis soon had diners waiting weeks for a reservation for such then exotic fare as roast duckling with tart cherry sauce, tender creamy beef stroganoff, chicken paprikash drizzled with sour cream, and a signature dish, beef wellington with Cumberland sauce. That's a classic English sauce with currant jelly and port wine. And Anyway, and the desserts mocha pecan tort laced with rum and apricot and enrobed in satiny, butter-rich icing, warm, crisp strudel bulging with tender slices of apple and eclairs puffed with heavenly banana whipped cream filling and anointed with bourbon-scented chocolate sauce. It mattered little to the public that the restaurant was in a rickety old building in a then seedy neighborhood or that Louis had filled it with secondhand silverware and furniture he described as early restaurant and late Salvation Army. <laughs> All diners saw were the cheery red and white candy striped awning outside, the clean white tablecloths, the spotless wooden floors, and Louis's family to greet and seat them, his wife and partner, Sada, his brother and sister-in-law, Geza and Wanda, his mother, Irene, and Sada's family. The show began with the tuxedoed European waiters who made mouths water as they did the unheard of then, recite the menu from memory, describing the ingredients in luscious detail. The spotlight turned up full power when the rich Eastern European-influenced food arrived. And then the finale, the showstopper, the entrance of Chef Louis. You know, think of like Barbara Streisand making her grand entrance in Hello Dolly or Carol Channing. Um, it was, hello, Louis, but all eyes turned to the very large figure who suddenly strode through the swinging kitchen door, uh, looking like Santa Claus with a towering chef's toque. Louis masterfully worked the crowd, visiting each table. As a former actor in Hungary, where he also earned a master's in journalism and a doctorate in psychology, Louis, all, Louis always gave a stellar performance in his role as chef. I treat everyone like a king I know, he once said. He was the first food 
personality long before Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck, said former Sun-Times food editor Bev Bennett and Louis' obituary in the Sun-Times. His real contribution, she said, was in developing the chef as a cult figure. Louis was driven to make it big. Perhaps it was the horror he experienced when his first wife, who I believe she was Jewish, and infant son were killed during World War II. After the war, the communist takeover of Hungary kept Louis running, and he almost starved to death. He came to the United States in 1951, speaking no English and with a dollar ten in his pockets. He took a job as a short order cook. He told me once, and he got fired right away too. And but he learned and kept moving up, catering for the rich and famous on the East Coast. He joined Armour and Company, where he did pioneering work in the development of frozen meals. The frozen spinach souffle he created for Stouffer's is still sold in supermarkets. And some of the food that US astronauts took into space had, had been developed by Louis for NASA. And finally, chef superstardom at the bakery. In its first year, more than 200 articles were written about the establishment. Many restaurant critics across the nation gave rave reviews. Some did not. And Louis said, they don't know shit taki from Shinola. <laughs> and, and guests came from Tokyo and Sydney, New York and Montreal. Louis hosted parties for Playboy magazine founder Hugh Hefner, rock star Frank Zappa, conductor Arthur Fiedler, and the entire Boston Pops Orchestra, and virtually every celebrity who visited Chicago. One high school senior celebrating his prom night at the bakery was so overcome by the sight of Louis' grand entrance that he knew at that moment that he too would be a chef one day. It was a decisive moment for me, Charlie Trotter recalled. Louis wrote seven cookbooks. His first, The Chef's Secret Cookbook, made Time Magazine's bestseller list. He made guest appearances on The Oprah Winfrey Show, Donahue, and Good Morning America. From 1978 to 1987, he wrote a food column for the Sun-Times that was syndicated in more than 100 newspapers. He kept three secretaries busy full-time, answering fans' cooking questions and coordinating his tour schedule. I first became acquainted with Louis actually 50 years ago in 1967 when, as a college student working part-time for a Northside neighborhood newspaper, I was assigned to edit the food features Louis submitted. He had titles on there like The Great Breast Contest, uh, and that was about turkey breast, and The Nose Nose, N-O-S-E-K-N-O-W-S, those, those titles intrigued me and his writing intrigued me. Besides, I had been hearing so much about the bakery that I decided to splurge and eat there. In 1967, a five-course dinner cost the then princely sum of $6.50 there. Um, Louis came to my table to introduce himself and over, over my very first beef wellington. We struck up a friendship and soon he was inviting me to have lunch with the staff. Those meals were heavier than the ones his customers were served for dinner, but just as delicious. For example, incredibly golden chicken soup. Oh, I, I said to Louis years later, I said, that was the best chicken soup I have ever had in my life. How did you make it? He said, God damn, I wish I knew. This old lady come in, put in bones, all sorts of stuff. I don't know how she made it. It was so good. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, Anyway, um, and he also served for the staff breaded pork cutlets with mushroom sauce heaped with fried potatoes. When I went to graduate school, Louis offered me part-time work as a busboy, and I worked with Serbian and Hungarian immigrants who Louis housed and fed until they got settled. There was a teenage African-American dishwasher, Louis, Louis who, who, uh, who Louis was sending to college, and a quiet 16-year-old girl who Louie and Sada had found hustling as a prostitute on Lincoln Avenue, and they brought her to the bakery to put her to work as a bus girl. And no matter whether we were working there as the maitre d' or a floor sweeper, Louie made it clear that we were part of the team and gave us all equal respect and equal servings of his hot temper. 
which would melt as fast as the butter he lavished on his dishes. After a while, Louis asked me to help catalog food articles in 100-year-old magazines and newspapers he had collected. He kept 31 upstairs rooms uh, filled with food books. When he retired, he donated 30,000 of them to the Culinary Archives and Museum at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, along with a staggering 400,000 culinary items, including a baker's ring found on a skeleton in the ruins of Pompeii, and I would see Louis wearing that ring in the restaurant, um, and presidential papers about entertaining in the White House. The museum is now renowned as the Smithsonian of Food Archives. One of my fondest memories of Louis dates from 1974. I mentioned to him that I was going to Paris, my first trip to Europe. Louis said he'd be there with Sada at the same time, so we arranged to meet for an evening. What a night. We stopped for unforgettable onion soup at a small restaurant on the Champs-Élysées, where Louis gave double the normal tip. There's no such thing as over-tipping the waitstaff, he said. We walked into a cafe in Montmartre where students, student artists grabbed their sketch pads and immediately began drawing this huge mustachioed foreigner. Louis borrowed one of their pads and a pencil and started sketching them. <laughs> they compared drawings, laughed a lot, and came over to sit at our table. And despite the students' limited English and Louis' heavy Hungarian accent, they communicated just fine. We wound up the evening at the Paris Opera. I don't remember much about what was performed. Actually, the lead singer at this beautiful opera, I read he was from Joliet, Illinois, so go, go figure. Anyway, but I do remember Louis heading straight to a newsstand as we left the opera. He bought a slick British magazine and handed it to me. Inside was a full-color caricature of Louis and a story about a culinary talk he'd given in London. My gosh, I said, they know about you even, they even know about you in Europe. Yes, said Louis beaming, that's success. So, thank you. One of my first jobs out of college was at the Chicago Daily News in 1973. And Louis, throughout his career, had collected community cookbooks, you know, the Iowa Women's Church Guild and whatever. And he had put them, assembled them into a whole set of cookbooks. Well, the Chicago, Isabel Dubois, who was the food editor at the Chicago Daily News then, decided to um, excerpt from these cookbooks. So she would pick out what we wanted, and then I would write up a little something or other. Then I had to go over to Louie and get the blessing from Louie, and I would go over midday, sit at the chef's table with the staff and have lunch, and he would, he would correct, as he might, uh, what, he thought, what he thought it should be and what it shouldn't be, or whatever. Anyway, um, it's also probably a good segue to the fact, we're just talking Hungarian, that now we're going to talk about Czech and Slovak food or Bohemian food or whatever you want to call it, because uh, let's just say vita me vas. And if anybody speaks Czech, you probably do it better than I do. I have only a few words that uh, are part of, my ling uh, part of my lingua. Anyway, if you've ever had kolachki, uh-huh, see, look at that. Those usually, they're, sometimes they're tiny round, sometimes they're folded, and especially if you've had one that's prune, apricot, or poppy. Now, if you've gotten into cherry and stuff like that, uh, strawberry, uh-uh. Prune, apricot, or poppy. Then you've had a taste of what the Czechs brought to this country, and specifically Chicago. But that's not the only food influence they had on this town. Um, like so many immigrants, they came here looking for a better life. The first wave of Czechs arrived in the mid-18th to the late 19th century, looking for a better, better life because of what was going on in their homeland. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was cre created in 1867 and grabbed everybody from Austria, Hungary, Poland, Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Moravia, Bohemia, which are areas in the Czech Republic, it's a Poland, you name it. They were all pulled together. It was a lot of turmoil, and so you can assume that a lot of people said, oh, I'm not sticking around for this, and they headed this way. That existed until 1918, at the end of World War I, 
And that's when the Czechs and the Slovaks joined to become Czechoslovakia, and they only just split and became the Czech Republic and Slovakia in 1993. But we're back in the mid to late 18th century now. Many of the Czechs that arrived from the ethnic region of Bohemia, which includes Prague, and Pilsen, which on a, map, on a Czech map will be spelled P-L-Z-E-N, but we pronounce it in English, Pilsen, um, that's where they arrived from. So, so because it's in Bohemia, a lot of Czechs, Slovakians, all became Bohemians to everybody outside the ethnic group. Now that I want to point out is a Bohemian with a capital B. The Bohemian with a low B is the one the French picked up about people who dressed provocatively or outlandishly or whatever. We'll let them have the low B. We're taking the big B. So after arriving in this country, of course, they set about cooking their favorite dishes with the ingredients they had locally or uh, you know, what, incorporating whatever they had locally into dishes they had. Um, they also established a lot of their favorite gathering places. Among them was Plizinki Sokol, which was an organization dedicated to fitness and Czech culture. My parents belonged to one. It was all about, you know, those, like, they looked like bowling pins and horses and all that, and there were competitions all the time. The other place they liked were taverns. Now, you have to realize Pilsen, Czechoslovakia, or in the Czech Republic, is an area of beer development. They're famous for their beer. They developed a brewing style there in particular. You'll, you know, the lager, a pils you'll hear about a Pilsner lager from that area. Actually, the first Czech-owned tavern was built or built or set up by John Slavic, Jan Slavic, excuse me, and it opened in the 1850s near Clark in Chicago. Not long after that, in the, um, in the 1870s actually, the Czechs started settling around 18th and Blue Island and somebody opened it a tavern and they named it Pilsen. Hence, the neighborhood became known as Pilsen. But that was around 18th and Blue Island. It's where my grandparents lived from both sides of the family. They came over in 1907, one of them, and one couple and the other ones came over in um, 1885. Um, so, but even in the taverns, you have to realize, okay, there was the beer, but food played an important role. If you can't smell it now, you will. There's a sausage that we're going to serve called praski, P-R-A-S-K-Y. It's beef and pork and spices, but garlic. Garlic is key. And um, according to my grandmother, who had a tavern, she said, I never talked to her, but my mother said that she would have praski on the table, on the counter, so that people could have that, or pickled pig's feet, or deviled egg, you know, um, pickled eggs. Because at that time, young men, including Anton Cermak, who became a mayor, would come when they were young people working. They'd come with their pail to collect the beer for their day and, you know, jump off the trolley car, get their beer, grab some salami. And she knew that if she kept sausages around, they would stick there and eat their lunch too and probably have a second beer, which was always a good thing. Um, you know, you, you hear about people using, you know, head cheese, which uses these bits and pieces of meat and gelatin, and you hear about these sausages, and you hear that they use the pig snout and the pig tail and the pig this. Um, Czechs were proud, the Bohemians were very proud of being a thrifty bunch, and having grown up with my grandmother, who reused aluminum foil, because that was something cool to have, and had lived through the um, Depression, you learned to use every piece of whatever you could have. So when they talk about Louis throwing, some woman throwing bones into the pot for soup. I'm thinking, uh, yeah, what else would you do with them? Um, other foods that they created when they came here that brought them um, a taste of home were a lot of yeastos. Uh, you might be familiar with the hosko, which is uh, several layers of braided bread, uh, a sweetened bread that has raisins and often almonds in them. And it's a traditional, it's called vanochka when it's served at Christmas, but if you're Czech, you eat it year-round. And the leftovers you eat dipped in egg and fried like, uh, like people do with challah. You know, it's used as a French toast. Um, other things, they had poppy seed-filled cakes called babovka, which would be a yeast dough rolled up with poppy seed, and it would be put in a crown mold. Uh, there were sheets of yeast dough that they padded and topped with fruit, depending on what was in season, and then there was streusel put on top. 
some of these things you're hearing, you're saying, oh, I'm Austrian or I, I'm German and I know that. And they had slightly different names, but they, every culture put their own stamp on it. Um, one of the things, my father's mother lived, she moved from child to child to child, right? She had a home, but in the winter she, and when she stayed with us, she would get up at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning and set yeast dough. And for the longest time, I thought everybody ate yeast dough with fruit on top for breakfast. And then I got to school and found out people were eating, you know, like Cheerios and uh, Rice Krispies. I didn't know that's what people ate for breakfast. Probably one of the things uh, that they embraced also quite a bit were the sausages. We talked about the Prusky, and like I said, it was made with uh, lean pork, beef plus garlic. And if you can smell it now, imagine what it was like for this little girl to take her Prusky sandwich to school, put it in the locker with all the kids had their lunches, and at noon when they let us go to lunch, I'd open it up and everybody go. <laughs> My first embarrassment of being Bohemian. No, um, there are many other sausages like Yetunise, which is called white jets, and it's made from pig snout and jowls. See, there we go. And there's a black version, which includes obviously blood. And the other part of cooking that's important to the Czechs is gravy. Now, there's a woman named Elizabeth Rosen who wrote about the flavor principle. She talks about the sweet-sour principle that different cultures have. Asian culture has it. Central European cultures have it. It's the play of sweet against sour. She also talked about cultured milk and herbs. And around the Mediterranean, they would use yogurt to season yogurt and cucumber to make uh, you know different different dishes. In the in the north, they used uh, uh, sour cream. To, to enrich their sauces. So you might say, well, like, what are you talking about pickled? Well, there's a dish called, there's a meat dish called svichkava, which, which involves pickling beef first, and then it's cooked, and then a sauce is made to go with it. But it's, a t it's got a tang to it because it's called svichkava. There's one called koprava, which involves, again, boiled beef, which this is, it doesn't sit in the beef, it just gets boiled in that beef broth, by the way, that gets used for a soup. Um, but after the beef is cooked, then with some of the juices, a dill gravy is made. Traditionally, and it's enriched with uh, sour cream. Traditionally, it was always served only in the fall when you could get dill, but because people could dill year-round, now you'll still find it in restaurants. Another dish is called raska, R-A-J-S-K-A. And it's a t basically a tomato gravy, uh, but it's seasoned with bay leaf, allspice, and thyme, and that's served with beef. There's roast duck, of course, and if you ever go to a Czech restaurant and the roast duck doesn't have crispy skin, I would send, no, any, don't, well, you can send it back if you want, but that was key, and when we had roast duck in our house, it would go in, and you were, there was one child always put in charge of pricking the skin, because the duck was held up on a, on a, a rack, pricking the skin so that the fat would drain off in the skin would crisp. So anyway, you, you know, when you're a child in a family of four kids, when there are four kids, their mom always found something for the kids to do, right? All right. Then there's roast pork, which was usually a loin of pork roasted, the top coated with caraway seeds. Now there's two kinds of sauerkraut. Of course, there's cabbage because there's always cabbage in Central Europe. There's regular sauerkraut, which is sort of pickled and sour, and probably caraway seeds and onion and assorted other spices in it. And then there's red cabbage, which is usually sweetened. Now, I will get into, there's places where I'm thinking, people, you're putting things together you should not be putting together. That's my personal opinion, and that has to go to dumplings, too. But uh, the cabbage, the sauerkraut, is a natural with pork, and things like that. Red cabbage goes with duck because of the rich, red cabbage is usually sweetened and therefore is a nice play against the richness of duck, not just the fattiness, but the, the type of meat it is. Now we get to dumplings. Now, my nieces and I, we counted out at least 12 different kind of dumplings in that cookbook there. There's a basic yeast dumpling, which you can find these days. Chateau makes them, I think it's frozen. Then there's a sort of yeast dumpling or a dough dumpling that take, that's used, uses bread cubes, which are first fried lightly in a bit of butter to brown them before they're mixed into the dough. Then there's cooked potato dumplings, which are often served, they're a lot, they're mild looking, they're heavy and dense. 
Those are usually served with something like smoked butt. If you don't know what smoked butt is, oi. All right. Um, <laughs> then there are raw potato dumplings, which are, of course, grated, mixed with onions, and they turn out a little bit mm, blue-green because of, obviously, those are naturals with, um, with duck. And one of the reasons, the difference between these, one is more bready, the yeast dumplings are more bready, and they go with the real heavy gravy sauce uh, dishes, ceviche, cavaco, brava, things like that, because they soak up the gravy, as we all sit there with bread sometime using it to soak up. The potato dumplings tend to be dense, and they don't soak up as much of the gravy, so, because a lot of those dishes were a little fatty, so you didn't want as much of the gr just grease soaked up. Then we have liver dumplings, and our family cannot have Thanksgiving without liver dumpling soup to start. Now, my brother is the only, I don't touch, okay, I will eat one. I'm not a big fan of liver, but that's, you know me. Um, but my brother will have it all the time. And then there's fruit dumplings, often made with farina, the cereal we know. And those were generally made again in the fall, or when peaches, they're generally with peaches or plums, sometimes apricots, and people have started putting cherries and things like that, uh, like not tart cherries, but the sweet cherries. But those, my, we of course made all of those, but my mother would also make those um, uh, and send to my sister in California. Now, around the city there are Vasecki's Bakery. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Vasecki's. Bubby's Rye is over there for later, and that's where the rye bread came from. And then Crawford Sausage is, it's actually on what used to be Crawford, on Pula it's now called Pulaski. And they sell their sausage all over the place. Or you can go online. I once sent a pound prusky to each of my brothers and my sisters for Christmas. Oh, their house smelled for the rest. Anyway, um, and if you get prusky and you've got it left over, do as so many cultures do and fry it on Saturday morning to go with your eggs, right? Like people do with bologna. Um, now, Czech restaurants. There are a lot of Czech restaurants mentioned in the encyclopedia. One of them, Klaas, is already closed. They were down in Italian, had taken it over, and was only serving Czech food on Saturdays, but I guess there wasn't enough um, business. But there still are quite a few Czech restaurants out there. There's one in um, Westmont called Bohemian Crystal. Uh, Czech Plaza is still there. There's Bohemian House, which serves a chicken paprikash that when I went there, I said to the waiter, <laughs> who was Mexican, he said, I said, you know, this isn't like my grandmother's. And he said, no one's dish is like their grandmother's. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, there's, there's another restaurant called Riverside Restaurant. There are, there were so many places to find, and we mentioned some of them, like Sokol. Does anybody know what the Sokol uh, cans of fruit paste are or fruit sauces? Those we used to all use for the kolachkis and things like that, if we didn't make our fruit from scratch or like the apricots from scratch. Um, but like I said, nothing, nothing was wasted, everything was used, and it was always delicious. Um, I, what do we want? I, I can give you names of places to go to look for this stuff. Little Europe Deli, my brother tells me, is good. Uh, I got my Prusky at Tony's Finer Foods. You call the place, they'll get, tell you places to go to get things if you want the Yitrenice. Um, there, it's still out there. It's just not as concentrated around Cermak Road, even though they still have the Hobie Festival. Who knows what Hobie means? All right, yaksamash. Uh, Hobi is the Czech word for mushrooms. And um, mushroom hunting is the kind of thing that is so important. I guess I don't have my mushroom hunting tips here. Um, it's so important that the Czech Genealogical Society has a list of mushroom hunting tips. And, and I grew up in Antioch, or well, actually a suburb of Antioch, Loon Lake, up north here near the Wisconsin border. My grandparents, my grandfather built, helped other Czechs who came out that way on the lake called Loon Lake to build a big cottage for everybody to come to a big clubhouse. And um, they called it the Allies Club, so you can see the reference to World War I in there. Um, and they all gathered up there. And he also built the house next door, which is where I grew up. 
hand, you know, there's the kind of thing, there are stories about carp, I haven't even mentioned carp, where they'd pull a carp in from the lake, my grandmother would put it in the bathtub with milk, milky water because to clean out, because they're bottom feeders, to clean out the fish before, before we'd cook it. And next door, the lady who taught me to make hoska lived next door, Millie Novak. And Ara Kojala, who lived next door, taught us to go hobie hunting. You need, and according to the rules, you need a short little knife, this big, a brown paper bag, and it should be done in the fall because traditionally that's when the screens were taken out of the windows and got ready for winter. And you would put the screens on two chairs, the mushrooms would be laid out and dried in the sun to last the winter. Now, I don't know if you want any more culinary tips or mushroom hunting tips, but <laughs> I don't have them, but I do have, and they're in over there, uh, a couple of Czech restaurants, some that I've heard about, some that I've been to, as well as the addresses and uh, websites for Vesecchi's and Crawford's, if you really want a taste of Czech anything. Anyway, thank you. for pictures. And one thing we forgot to mention are the fabulous illustrations in the book. And many of them we got, uh, we had to actually purchase from the Chicago History Museum and from other historical societies. And the book does have a few recipes um, that we forgot to mention that are typical Chicago recipes, um, Berghoff, spinach, um, what is it, spinach, um, cream spinach, and shrimp de jong. And Carol developed and tested these recipes. And the third thing is at the back is a list of resources uh, in the city where there's all kinds of places where, um, that have you know, repositories of culinary information. And I think that was really, um, really helpful. Anything else I forgot? Uh, back to the recipes. The one interesting recipe in the start, in the beginning of the book is the historical, is claimed to be like one of the first written recipes from the Chicago area found in a family cookbook, and it was for squash pie. And it listed all the ingredients you normally would think would be in a squash pie, you know, the sugar, uh, probably molasses to sweeten it, spices, and then it just said, bake. No, no, di no directions at all, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. And there's a couple other historical recipes in there too, just fun to look at. Thanks. Okay. Any questions? Yeah. Just a comment. Uh, this is the uh, year of Chicago. We started with the Cubs. The documentary is coming out November 8th on how Chicago won World War II. You'll see it on TTW. And I think it'd be incumbent upon you to look into TTW and make a documentary on this. I think it's important that people in this city know how important it is. We've got the best restaurants in the country now. We have a history as showed us the best, and I think it would be a good compliment to your book. Thank you. And Bruce Craig, he would be the one to, to dump this on. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce is a, uh, uh, does documentaries on foods around the world for PBS. Okay. We need the microphone, we oh, can't hear you. Okay, maybe we should all get together, yeah. yeah. Well, the mayor gave us a terrific blurb. If you look at the back cover, the mayor says this is the greatest food city and the greatest city in America and all of that. So uh, I think it, it is true. A very small amount. <laughs> Go ahead, Margaret. Oh, just, this, is, this is Margaret Sheridan. Yeah. I worked here at Carol for years, and no one works harder than Carol. <laughs> so when you sign, you have 70, over 70 writers and reporters working for you. What type of guidelines, word count, whatever, did you give them? Because you're, you're going you're to write Charlie Charlie, and you're going to do Melanie. That was me. Well, we tried to give them word counts. We, we decided ahead of time, okay, this subject could take 200 words. Um, you know, it was just our guess, a good guess, you know. And uh, most everybody did exactly what we said, yes. <laughs> and uh, it was quite easy editing-wise, wasn't it? I mean, it was, um, yeah, it, it went 
very smoothly. I mean, we were kind of worried to begin with, okay, we set an early deadline on purpose, and most everybody made it. A couple outliers there, right? Yeah. But, yeah, and we did have a, the word count, what the press gave us too. So we had a number of words, a fixed number of words. We had to allot among the various entries. And that, again, that went pretty well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and Andy Smith uh, of New York was very helpful. He sent us his, he was really nice. Uh, he sent us his outline and, you know, he was very supportive. These are the only two cities that have encyclopedias, as far as I know. New York and Chicago. Oh my God! Quite a few. That's great. How, okay, one other. How many heard Louis Zathmary the night he filled Rosary College's auditorium? <laughs> I'm sorry that um, all the books are in Providence. Yes. They're not all in Providence. Go ahead. But we need to do it again, right? Because there's so much happening. Yeah. <laughs> Got a comment. Yeah. Heard Craig Borso this week, and uh, I asked him what he was going to do next, basically, because he just finished once on fountains, public fountains in Chicago, and he said he's going to do a book, which may be out in a couple of years. He had started on it, uh, but on um, what uh, restaurants that are no longer in Chicago. Mm -hmm. If anybody has suggestions, I guess you can contact them. You know. I you know, I think I've, I was at a couple other, or at least one other, uh, event on this, and I find it interesting that, you know, we're talking about restaurants, and we all know that part of it, but it's amazing when you think about, as Carol pointed out, the amount of food manufacturing that went on here. Dressel's cake, let's do another, who can remember Dressel's? Mm -hmm. It showed up at every party, right? Um, pardon? Widen? Widen? 59th Street. Okay. That one, I don't know. But, I mean, Sara Lee, all of that, and Kraft, and, um, and you mentioned the malted milk thing, which I had not, I did mm -hmm, not know about. Mm -hmm. Or there's the brownie from the, is it brownie from the Palmer House in there? There you go. You know, so I mean, there's all those iconic foods that were created here too. Very, exactly, yep. Which one? The top grade was like 34% butterfat. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Kool-Aid. I worked on Kool-Aid, open pit barbecue sauce, uh, peas yep. and salad dressing. There you go. All general foods. Yeah. Twinkies, Chicago. Twinkies. Twinkies, yeah. uh-huh, for sure. Hydrox cookies. <laughs> oh, uh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. One of the key words, key word cookies and crackers. Right, right. <laughs> Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. The whole Tootsie Roll. Uh, yeah, this was the great candy center um, of, of the world, actually, because it was had access to, um, you know, to, to the raw ingredients. The sugar came, the uh, corn syrup, and then the chocolate was brought in. And then you had all these people working in the factories. And uh, I've forgotten how many, at one point, there were just maybe 100 factories that made... Uh, Baby uh, Ruth. Baby Ruth, yeah, everything, yeah. Yeah. How many movies would you have not go ahead candy to eat if they yeah. <laughs> But there's one thing Chicago doesn't have that New York has a lot of. What is that? Does anyone guess? It doesn't have a co its own cocktail, which is very unusual. Can you consider prohibition? There's no Chicago cocktail. I know. It is. It's, it's very bizarre. Let's make one. Yes. 
I'm, I'm wondering, I, one of my favorite oh, hobbies is going around to different no. ethnic groceries. One of my favorite hobbies is going around to different ethnic grocery stores and exploring different uh, stores, whether it's uh, a Korean grocery or whether it's Fresh Farms up on Tui, whatever it is. And I'm wondering if you had something in the book that talked about the sort of evolution of grocery stores and the w much wider variety of stuff that's included in modern day grocery stores. Uh, well, actually, I wrote about supermarkets for, for well, supermarket, anyway. And what it started out is, again, if you go to any of the old neighborhoods, Italian, whatever, uh, Czech, Polish, they would have the meat man and the grocery man and the dairy person. And in the old days, somebody on a bicycle would drive, you know, ride over and pick up what you had and ordered. In fact, uh, my, bro my brother's father-in-law is Swedish, and he remembers being up in Andersonville, going to Simon's when he was old enough, but working for a shop up there, and it was during the war, and he can tell the story now, but he said he would you know, deliver all this stuff all day on the bicycle. His mother wouldn't let him quit the job. But at the end of the day, the butcher would say, here, here's a little bit of extra that wasn't part of the rations, but I'm telling you that now, don't. <laughs> anyway, you know, for his work, because he got paid like, you know, what, two cents an hour or something like that. But so what happened is after World War II, a lot of food preservation came about, uh, methods of food preservation came about as part of World War II. Canning, um, freezing came along a little bit. Anyway, and also what happened is after World War II, women started getting into the workforce more. So that's when you started to see the development of supermarkets, you know, not, not the big Costco's of today, but supermarkets that you could drive to or walk to, or, and more stuff was consolidated. Um, but what happened is you still had your neighborhoods where different ethnic groups settled because their cousins before them settled there and their third uncle or whatever. And um, you could still find those, like you said, like you go up to Argyle, how many different, how many different groceries up there can you find that are, I'm gonna use the word seasoned or spiced with an ethnic culture. I went to Tony's Finer Foods at uh, 75th and, no, 25th Street and oh, just off Harlem. Tony's is a chain and when I asked, uh, when I went to go get the Prusky, they said they didn't have a slicer at the store, at the factory. So I said, well, where can I go to get it sliced? They got, go to Tony's Finer's Food. She gave me a couple, something called Tischler's in, in um, Brookfield. Anyway, I went to Tony's. You walk in there, it's like every ethnic group is there. You're like, it's like a United Nations of shopping. It's one, it, I mean, you know, for me, it's wonderful. It's like, oh, what are you, what are you gonna use that for? Can you tell me what to do? Jackfruit? I haven't figured out what to do with jackfruit yet. Uh, you know, it's not on my skill set. But, um, but those ethnic groups are still, have their own little groceries. And one of the, one of the uh, team that took advantage, not took advantage of it, but tapped into the need for our taste for ethnic food of other cultures was Treasure Island, which before they came, which, which before they came along, if you were in, you, you had to get Korean food in the Korean neighborhood, you had to get Italian food in the blah, 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 all that. They decided, okay, we're going to get some whatever Korean ingredient and bring it in here, and we're going to bring in Italian olive oils that you can only get in Italian groceries, and we're going to bring in, I don't know, whatever, the pickles that are only made in this neighborhood here. And so then they started, and they started that kind of bringing all these different little ethnic items into the grocery, and they were quite proud of doing all of that, of being the sort of, I don't know, one-stop shopping, but yeah, at the Vanguard, thank you. Anyway, any other questions? Oops, Carol. Peter. For Colleen, um, it's not a cocktail, but uh, don't forget uh, Malort. Oh, Malort. Yes, which is the, that's true, that which you wrote about, which is the famous, uh, yeah, it was invented in the 1930s, and uh, it was um, it was uh, the guy brought the bought the recipe from someone in Sweden, and it's very bitter. Although you said recently it's been got kind of milder than it was in the past. It's not what it used to be. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, there was this thing, Cohasset Punch, in the 20s and 30s, but it never really caught on either. It's, um, it's rum with peach in it, and it was, came from New York originally, I think. Yeah, but it was really associated with Chicago. I mean, that, that is a true Chicago. That's true. I would, I would actually uh, take well, issue with your Well, but nobody, nobody knows what it is anymore. I mean, it's kind of disappeared. No, the recipes are around. Um, yeah, there was a bar uh, down on uh, Wells and Madison, um, Ladner Brothers. Um, the stuff was uh, bottled by Ladner's for decades. Yeah. Cohasset, C-O-H-A-S-S, M-A-L-O-R-T. Yeah. Cohasset, C-O-H-A-S-S-E-T. But somebody mentioned we were giving a talk. What about the Mickey Finn that was invented in Chicago? <laughs> That's not really a cocktail either. <laughs> yeah. How do we compare compare in bread production with the rest of the country? It's a basic food. In what production? Bread. I don't know. Can you repeat the question? What, what do we, how do we compare in bread production? Well, I mean, the commercial bread industry, I mean, there, there was huge milling operations way back when here and many uh, giant commercial bakeries. So that kind of bread <laughs> was all around. Um, what's interesting to me is that we're finally going back to the old-fashioned kind of bread, the, and they're calling it artisan bread now, but really it's what we used to bake all the time. And uh, it's encouraging that more bakeries, nice quality bakeries are open up. Publican has their, their bread. Um, Little Goat and their bread that they're making, delicious. Um, yeah, so that's kind of encouraging, you know. It's coming around again. Yeah. Uh, in your uh, looking into this, did you come across anything about Native American foods that were unique to Chicago? And also, how about freshwater fish? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a Native American entry, and um, the wild things, of course, Chicago's named after the wild leek, so that was in abundance in this, this neck of the woods. But um, Native Americans were, yes, the fresh fish. Um, I think Lake Michigan was probably a little more productive then than it is now. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I think it's hard to even find perch in Lake Michigan anymore. Uh, certainly it's not fish commercially anymore. Um, so yeah, there were quite a few, and of course nuts and uh, pawpaws. I think were grown around here. Can you think of anything else? No. We so, have fish too. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I have a question. I have a question. Who here has gone smelting? All right, that's what I like to hear. That's good. Oh, all right. Well, he got me on that one. Smelting many times. Very good. Okay. Okay, well, thanks for, oh, one more in the back. How important was it to the overall food scene in Chicago? And it's just a judgment call. And that's why I want all of you to help suggest things that we, you know, probably left out. And, uh, but yeah, it was a judgment call. And uh, some people will uh, argue with our inclusions and some won't. So. All right, well, thank you very much. One more thing. This is the important part. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the food. Uh, um, Judy already spoke about the food that she brought, the sausage and the breads. And um, Kathy, you can talk from back there, but can you? Kathy made something from the bake, Louise Athmarie's bakery cookbook. Yugoslavia thing on another day for it. But that's what we made. And Judy, you brought the bread of the And then there's also, what else? 
Well, and, and for dessert, there's Eli's Cheesecake. A little story about that. I did write about uh, Eli's Cheesecake in the book and about Eli, the restaurateur, and Mark Schulman um, was so grateful for this, the owner of Eli's, that uh, he donated all the cheesecake. And, uh, and I, there we have an honored guest here. She surprised me today by coming here, Jolene Worthington, who was the person who developed the cheesecakes from going back how many years when the company started? 33 years. 33 years. And, and she, she's still there. I mean, she's the, the genius. I mean, Eli created the original recipe, which was wonderful, but uh, Jolene translated it for mass production, and they kept the quality going. Um, at the, and we've had Jolene here actually speaking about the cheesecake. And Pardon me? Was she autographed too? Um, sure. She, well, um, anyway, she, she, she's a nice piece of cheesecake herself. So, so. <laughs> but that's it, yeah. I'll get, I'm, I'm hamming it up too much.